0: This is Friday Night Frights, brought to you by Starburst Magazine. Make a one of us. A cup, a we accept a one of us. We
1: accept a one of <speaking gobbled> <Uber center. gobbled> We accept a one of us. We
0: accept
1: the one of us. We accept one of
0: us. We Hello and welcome to Friday Night Frights, the weekly horror podcast from Starburst Magazine. I'm John Tolson, and tonight's guest is the actress and author Barbie Wilde. As an actress, Barbie Wilde is best known as the female Cenobite in Clive Barker's Hellraiser 2, but she's also an accomplished author in her own right, and this November sees the publication of her first novel, The Venus Complex, a powerful and erotic tale of murderous obsession.
2: I've always been fascinated by the criminal mind, even when I was a little girl. Um, Instead of To my mother's dismay, instead of reading like little girly stories, I'd be reading Sherlock Holmes stories and science fiction and stuff like that. My father was very much into science fiction, so he had a huge collection of analog and science fiction and fantasy magazines and books. But um, it was Sherlock Holmes, and I I really liked Moriarty. Mm -hmm. I I even invented a backstory for him, you know. How could he be so horrible, you know? And that sort of always, you know, very interested in film noir and stuff like that, even when I was a kid. And seeing Psycho at an early age on television sort of went, wow, this is so interesting. And and reading Colin Wilson books um, when I first came over to England, uh, I think it was The Order of the Assassins. And I just thought... how can these people exist? You know, I was living in this bubble. I didn't know who Ted Bundy was, you know, and all these, these, these people who, who, you know, the, the people with smiles on their faces, but death in their heart. <laughs> and uh, I just thought, wow, this is so interesting, so different than, you know, I'm a warrior. I, I would like to think I'm very empathic about other people and how they feel and, and stuff, and these people don't feel that way. And it was fascinating to me. And so I started doing, you know, uh, reading a lot about it before I made the decision to to write the novel. I am writing the novel. Actually, I had a friend of mine, and she really is a friend of mine. So I know a lot of people say, "Oh, I have this friend," (laughs) but she is not only was she she had a master's degree in human sexuality, and she was going for a master's as well into forensic psychology. But she was also one of the best, biggest, and most famous or notorious dominatrixes in New York. And she once confessed to me that her biggest fantasy was to sleep with a serial killer. And I was appalled, you know, but at the same time, I went, that's very interesting. And I wonder what a serial killer's sexual fantasies are. And all the books I'd read and novels I'd read so far, I've always concentrated, especially the fiction stuff, on highly, I think, unrealistic, gratuitous violence. Yeah, how many murders can we do that are really, you know, outlandish, basically? And and if you look at, I did a huge amount of research, and through her, I was able to interview a detective with the Homicide uh, Bureau of uh, Manhattan North, i.e., Harlem, um, and he just finished a serial killer case, and so I was able to talk to him, and so and so I tried to make my murders, if you like, really realistic and think about okay what would he be thinking about rather than sort of outlandish you know crimes and so that was i i feel the difference in in my book to other books is that i i really tried to get into his head mm-hmm. um and that required a lot of research um and you know friends like my my dominatrix friend who who's who have actually had helped the police in some of their more um, out-there cases. Mm. So that's where part of it came from well, anyway. Uh, I
0: think before we go any further then, maybe we would need to sort of let the reader in and the, the listener in on uh, some of the storylines because uh, your serial killer, whose name's Michael Friday, is quite unusual, isn't he? Because he's, he's an art history professor. Mm. Uh, And it starts off with he returns home after he kills his cheating wife in a car crash. Um, And then he becomes obsessed with a forensic psychologist.
2: Yeah, Uh, that love at first sight thing. I mean, the kind of obsession... I actually, you know, I, there was a little point where I became very obsessed with this guy who was at my gym. Uh, this is many, many years ago. Um, oh, God, too many years ago to think about. But I, I was so healthy at that point because I was going to the gym all the time just so I could get a glimpse of him. And our t- mutual trainer introduced us. And I couldn't say anything to him. I couldn't talk. He would buy me cups of coffee and we'd just sit and stare at each other in the most, you know, it was just ridiculous. He was an actor too. You'd think we'd have a little bit more sort of, um, you know, personality with each other. But I realize now that that was kind of an obsession. Hmm. And so when he sees his love object... You know, I I could sort of understand, I think anybody could, everybody's had that moment when they've sort of been hit by, you know, a sledgehammer in the back of the neck, Mm. thinking, I'm in love with that person. Well, how could you be really? Because you don't know them at all. If you look at what the actual definition of love is so but you know i think everybody's had that kind of experience and so that's where i um figured with a man of course it would be much many many ways much more powerful
0: Mm. but well, well, and like your obsession with the man in the gym and you sort of what frequented the gym in order to be close to him yeah Uh, kind of what michael does is it goes one step further than that doesn't he? he actually orchestrates murders so that he can get close to his love object.
2: Yeah, it's like one of the taglines is dating by murder might seem a bit extreme, but Michael's an extreme kind of guy. And I think because of the accident and his front temporal lobe damage and all these things that are often absolute factors in why people become serial killers, it's not just, you know, are they a psychopath or any of these other things. He's lost his impulse control.
1: Hmm. And he
2: thinks this is a great idea. And of course, because of his art background, he can do it um quite <laughs> artfully mm. so uh
0: that kind of loss of Im- impulse control kind of is is, is kind of like a axe of the circuit breaker that's stopped working in in his head hasn't it yeah uh, exactly. is, is this where you went back to the colin wilson thing because one thing that struck me is is when michael returns home from his hospitalization after kind of killing his wife at, at the beginning Mm-hmm. Uh, he's hospitalized as well for uh well to it let was the, lis- it the was, listener know yeah
2: yeah exactly he was trying to commit suicide and yeah. he was just fed yeah. up with his life absolutely
0: and his life. which is the point i was leading on to the sort of which is an, uh, something else i think colin wilson said about serial killers is that there's a kind of st- a sense of very deep disenchantment with life a, a kind of almost a sense that michael has that he was born for better things that Than what he ended up being. uh, Exactly. And kind of becoming a serial killer is a way of self-actualizing in a way, isn't it?
2: Well, it's not only Wilson, but many other, Mm. you know, authors when they've been trying to, and doctors. I I read a wonderful book by um, uh, Dr. David Hare, I think his name was, about psychopaths and stuff. You know, it's it's always, life is always going to disappear disappoint them because their expectations are either too high or whatever or that they feel that they were as you said meant for something more but if you haven't got the talent or even the will or whatever to write that novel or write a symphony or whatever you have these feelings of of um superiority but how why killing someone is sort of the ultimate transgression and it is the power of people like God or nature or whatever, you know, coming down and, you know, taking lives so, you know, recklessly without what we can see any kind of plan. And so they think that makes them godlike if you mm. kill someone. And mm. unfortunately, this is kind of, it's not just serial killers who do this. You know, um, presidents and dictators and, um, you know, all these, as, as Michael says, all these great heroes of history, that we admire alexander the great and all these people of actually what have they done it's because they're wonderful war heroes and yes they're heroes to the the victors but to their poor con- the conquering the, the people who they've conquered it's it's not such a great situation yeah so uh,
0: and michael doesn't he fits right in in a sort of academic environment doesn't he which is rife with people who are <laughs> Backstabbers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, no, it was interesting because my, my dominatrix friend once said that her biggest clients were um, politicians, right up there, uh, journalists, funnily enough, and academics. Right. And I think it's because they ha- all these people are, are sort of making a, um, you know, they have to appear to be on the straight and narrow. And sometimes that can be very, very constraining. And so they just, for an hour a week, they can go to someone and somebody else is in charge. Yeah. And she said, captains of industry, of course, mm. they were at the top. Yeah. They, you know. And then, funnily enough, I think she threw the journalists in because she was actually being interviewed on TV at the time and got a big laugh. But I did actually think that her biggest clients were captains of industry politicians. And, and then academics, yeah. because at that point, they don't have to be in charge anymore. How yeah. glorious. Someone else is pushing them around. But, um, I yeah. mean... Do they I, take I a don't break act-
0: from their ruthless ambition.
2: Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, the you know, I actually... I know a few teachers and stuff like that, so that's where I, I sort of got that from. But to to be perfectly honest, I mean, I've never been in that kind of environment, the only environment. I, I once taught a bunch of 12-year-olds some drama ones way, way long time ago, but I've never been in that sort of – I've been lucky enough not to be in the um, – sort of backstabbing environment of that. And it's funny because everyone always thinks actors are really horrible to each other, but I think that's once you get up into this huge, you know, you're you're bigger than Tom Cruise or something. But Mm. uh, for the most part, we're pretty, try to be as friendly to each other as we possibly Mm. can, just because you never know if that person might end up being on another job with you. Yeah,
0: sure, and to help each other along a little bit. But you mentioned Psycho earlier, and uh, I also thought of uh, another Hitchcock film, which is Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Um, cause in, you know, in, I said this in my review that, that Michael, a little bit like Norman Bates, you can identify with him up to a point because of him being a social outsider. And Scotty in Vertigo is kind of psychosis, takes a form of a sort of romantic obsession, doesn't it? Yeah, but yeah. But the, the kind of what links... All of the characters, I think, in a way, is that they eventually kind of leave reality behind, don't they, as they go further down this kind of road of aberration or transgression.
2: And, and, you know, in a funny way, I mean, this is probably going to sound a little bit strange. I have a lot more sympathy towards Norman Bates than I do for Scotty in many ways. Yeah. Because, you know, I love his character and I love that movie. I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. And... Um, uh, I, I think he's, he's a genius at, at portraying, you know, people in uncomfortable spots in more ways than one. But, you know, the things that he does to, oh, I can't remember, Judy's character. Wow, mm. I remembered her name just like that. Mm. Um, you know, when he finds his love again and thinks he can reincarnate her as the, the beautiful Madeline, is, it's really kind of creepy.
0: Mm. Sadistic. And, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can sort of understand why Norman turned out the way he did, poor yeah. guy.
0: He's a victim, but, isn't he? Yeah, yeah
2: exactly. But mm. Scott Scotty is um he seems so normal and fine and you know, but maybe he got his head bumped on that in that fall at the beginning of the movie too. And so something's gone a bit scrambled in his head. But uh no, it's it's actually very kind of sinister what happens to him. I actually think Hitch likes to do that to to characters like James Stewart, who is so normal, yeah. but he's always putting him in the terrible positions. Um, There's the, the other film that with Doris Day.
0: Oh yeah, and the man, um, the man who knew too much. Exactly, yeah. exactly,
2: mm. and um, he's done quite a few.
0: Yeah, Rear Window uh, as well, and uh, oh. moments of absolute <laughs> sort of dread that. It really puts James Stewart through the ringer, doesn't he? Exactly,
2: exactly. Yeah. It's like I just think I really like James. How can I torture him in the uh. next movie? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, it is it is interesting. His um, uh... <laughs> well,
0: what I wanted to say to you, I mean, what Hitchcock does in a way is he sort of really takes us along this road of identification, doesn't he, with, with these characters? But there comes a point, and I think you do it as well, very successfully, in the Venus complex, where you you it, it's you don't actually kind of condemn michael in any sort of way you kind of say look how far can you identify with him and there isn't actually i, I can't imagine there being a cut off point in the novel where people go no i i've gone too far i can't identify with him anymore i i think that maybe some people would go a little bit further than other people and that's what makes it such a fascinating novel because it is where does each person reading that novel kind of think no this is the point where i can't identify with 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 michael
2: yeah i mean what one interviewer actually asked me he said when you were writing this did you actually put your pen down or or just say whoa even i think this is weird and i did you know, there were some moments where I was thinking, gosh, where is this character taking me? Yeah, I actually saw a review once, um interview with this writer, and he said, I just create the characters, and I just follow where they lead. And in many ways, I mean, it kind of sounds a little bit spooky, but that's, once Michael had, had been created, I thought, okay, this is where he's got to end up, and uh, let's see where he takes me. And it was just... Um, it was a bit of a roller coaster, right? Because obviously, I don't agree with everything he says, mm. but I can certainly understand his how he looks at the world, and sometimes with a jaundiced eye—a really jaundiced eye. I think at the time, I was watching far too much twenty-four hour rolling news, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, God, this is insane! If you watch this all the time. It would, it would drive you nuts, and it would make you think, what's the point of even wanting to be part of the human race because of the things we do to each other? That's why it's really good to step back and, you know, get a massage or do mm. some yoga or listen yeah. to a really nice piece of music because uh, he doesn't do that. And one of the things when I was reading about psych- psychopathy mm. um, is that they don't really... Um, relate to music and art like normal people do. Mm. They're not really moved. Music can't move them. I found that was fascinating, especially when you think about how much, you know, another famous um, uh, fictional character, Hannibal Lecter, loves the Goldberg variations and um, stuff. But they can't relate to music quite in the same way that you and I do. Mm. And uh, But that's why when Michael was looking at his art books, he goes, "I, I, I... I can't get what I used to feel from these pictures anymore. What's happened to me? You know. And but he decides to create another kind of art, and that does excite him. But um, um,
0: do you think Michael you know, was the way he was before the accident? Or?
2: I actually think that I've I've have read a lot about this, and front temporal lobe damage does can change people's personality Hmm. in the same way that I read also um, that this guy was walking through a forest once he got hit by lightning Hmm. and his personality changed you know you fry some chemicals in your brain yeah and it's the same with with car accidents and all these sort of things i don't know why i'm so fascinated by them some guy getting a you know a spike in his head or something they removed it and he became quite different but when you think about back in the bad old days people were being lobotomized you know that was basically putting you might want to cut this it's so disgusting mm-hmm. putting a needle in your eye and poking a bit of the brain to see if you can calm somebody down that wouldn't calm me down Mm. but yeah i i think his his feeling sure there were feelings you know in his earlier life of how he would look at girls like you know and he he wanted them but he couldn't have them he didn't have the confidence and that kind of frustration and stuff and um um, certainly, his feelings towards his wife and the rage and all this sort of stuff—he was—he was well on his way mm. to become something bad. Yeah. But I think the accident probably tipped him over.
0: Sure, it kind of let him out of the cage in a way, didn't it?
2: Yes, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well, without giving away too much of the rest of the plot, um, what intrigued me particularly. Um, As especially as I was getting towards the end of the novel, is that I was I kind of got the feeling that his final revenge uh, was a kind of a could have been a fantasy. In other words, it might not actually have happened except in his own mind. And then that kind of made me question what I'd read previously, and I thought, how how much of this really has happened, and how much is a kind of a fantasy in his mind.
2: Well, th- this is the interesting thing: is that that has never occurred to me because mm-hmm. I felt that his um, he was just pouring everything out into that diary, and these are his true thoughts. But yeah. of course, it, it's absolutely possible that these are his fantasies, and that's another way why maybe why he's not running around killing people it's funny the same thing was said about american psycho because that's that's from is that that is written from the first person isn't it
0: yes very much so i mean i haven't read the book but i know so i've seen the film and i know certainly that the film hinges on that very thing of how much is this how much is this is a sort of sad man's kind of fantasy you know
2: exactly exactly but when you're in that book you don't get that impression i was quite surprised when i mean i'm not quite sure if Brett Easton Ellis actually said that as a, you know, just kind of a, well, no, it's all just a fantasy kind of thing, or whether he did even say that, but certainly in the movie it became that. When you're reading the book, I never got that impression, but then again, I, I I get into books in a very literal manner. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I hope it would be fantasies because the violence in that book, was which you didn't see in the film, there were some really nasty things that went on there. And um, uh, which is one of the reasons why I, th- I think, if I'm not mistaken, his first publishing company said they got the book and read it and went, you know, keep the advance, but we can't publish this. Mm. And so he had to go... There's quite a big stir about it at the time that he had to go to another publisher and they did publish it Hmm. because there are some bits in it that you just, you know... I actually read it twice thinking, is it really... Was it really as bad as the first... Yes, it was. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and here am I just having written a book about a serial killer. Yeah. But... um,
0: It's kind of like a litany of obscenity really, isn't it? It's a kind of list of consumer... (laughs) Consu- <laughs> consumer goods, kind of juxtaposed oh, but, with a list of sadistic acts.
2: Yeah, yeah, but you see, that is brilliant. Mm. You know, I, I do, I do find that funny. And since he did set it in the eighties, of course, which yeah. we was consumer heaven.
1: Mm.
2: Um, I think that what Michael does in his rants against, you know, everything that he sees on television and and the state of the, you know, humanity. Mm and stuff it's sort of like that that is the version now because we're all looking at the world going, what's going on? Um, what's happening? It, it doesn't seem you know right, all this injustice and all these things going on and et cetera, where in the '80s people were just worrying about how thick your business card was Sure
0: yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah, this kind of sense of disencha- kind of being disconnected from his own life mm. but did, did you have problems with your publisher because of for, for similar reasons because Again, for the listener or the reader who hasn't uh, yet read The Venus Complex, it's erotically charged, isn't it? And it's very explicit. Yes. And maybe we can get on to the reasons why it's so explicit in a minute. But did did you have any problems with finding a publisher for this? (laughs) I know the answer to the question, but, but please answer uh, it anyway.
2: Well, I think there, there was a plaintive little note on my, um, my website. Wh- you, which I year, read, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, saying, uh, uh, you know, still looking for a publisher that will understand it, yeah. you know. And yes, oh, and I have done, you know, interviews and stuff. And it, it, one of the problems was this, the, the book was actually with a publisher for a year. Mm. And I really wanted these people to publish it because I thought they'd be perfect. And they kept me hanging on for a year. And I won't say who they are, but that's an awfully long time.
1: Sure. I mean,
2: six months is normally the 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 hell you have to wait. And you don't have, you know, and I didn't send it out to anybody else. And you are allowed to do that if you have a, you know, literary agent. If you're sending to literary agents, you can only do one literary agent at a time. But publishers, you know, but I just wanted them to do it. And in the end, they said No. And that really sort of sent me into, oh, poo, Mm. there's a year gone. But then I found Comet Press, and she didn't touch a word of it. She thought it was great. I mean, I have been working on it, toning it down, uh, you know, for a little while now. So I felt it was as good as it could be. And she just, um, Cheryl Mullins of Comet said, hey, let's go for it. And, you know, she really liked it. And she's been nothing but supportive. And um absolutely brilliant. Um, it's a small press, mm. but they they only put out about nine books a year or something, but they they give enough attention to each one. You don't feel that you're lost in this big mass of yeah. of other authors, which is great.
0: and they they uh, concentrate on sort of dark crime, don't they?
2: Uh, dark crime and horror. Yeah. yeah, and that's great. So I feel like i've I found a nice little little place. Uh, you know that understands me and a niche that um, I'm you know interested in in exploring more as well as the horror stuff Mm. as well because I don't know if you've read any of my short stories
0: yeah absolutely I don't
2: oh right you're right because um, you know I never when Paul Kane approached me three years ago for to write a book for um, a short story for the Hellbound Hearts anthology I said Paul you know I'm really more interested in crime yeah. i don't think i can write horror and he said well you are a female cenobite, for goodness sake you yeah. know yeah. you must be able to write something that's you know and he really sort of said come on give it a go and um i did and again that was also um you know he's called it, caused it uh, called it himself. you know controversial because it is again quite erotic yeah. but um if you <laughs> it all depends on how you look at cenobites. um <clears throat> so um, that's where the horror thing started, but I you know w- wasn't interested in writing horror before that um so it was like this sort of parallel
0: yeah, let's just talk about the, the eroticism of the book because that that's kind of what gives it its real st- sort of transgressive edge, i think um it it reminded me a little bit of the sort of annin sort of Alina rise kind of approach but what was different was that you were writing from the male point of view but at the same time I didn't get the sense that it was a kind of a feminist tract or a diatribe against male sexual violence I felt that it was but it challenged the reader to kind of find their own way you know or their own feelings in a way about what, what they were reading but what what kind of led you to want to write uh something this kind of explicit uh and i have to say that it's one of the few novels that where the sex passages of the sex really are really important to the novel it's a little bit like jg ballard crash in that way that this you know the sex is the story in a way uh and it wasn't boring to read. It wasn't just kind of just, you know, so many novels they just throw in a sex scene, don't they? In between, the, you know, in between the plot. But this doesn't do that at all. It is very much about the kind of the eroticism. But what can you say about that writing from the male point of view?
2: Um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a challenge. Um, but I was... I actually, like I said, I did my research, and i, I but I also talked to men, and a lot of women don't do that <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they're afraid to hear, I think, what men think of women truthfully and how they look at them. I'm not saying that Michael is the ideal man to and you know, how he looks at women, which is is not right at all, of course, but I was able to get a lot of um, uh and also from, from my friend as well, who's, her clients are mostly men, um, and the, how they look at women, especially how some men who are a little bit disturbed look at women. Mm. And so, but again, it was like, okay, I create this character and I see where he goes. And, um, you know, I've had a couple of questions. How can you write from a man's viewpoint like that? And I guess, you know, the guy who wrote um, Diary of Geisha was a guy. Mm. And he wrote it from the viewpoint of a geisha. How did he do that? I mean, I don't know if he could explain it any better than I'm doing. But when I first started writing this book, you know, a few years ago, it was the story of plucky forensic psychologist Elaine Shepard and her tracking down this nasty serial killer. It was totally, you know, third-person, conventional serial killer tracking down you know, who, the heroine versus the the bad guy. And I was about a third of the way through, and I thought, God, I'm bored.
1: Mm.
2: <laughs> I mean, this is like every other book I've read, and many of them are brilliant, but I wanted to do something different. Mm. And I didn't want to concentrate on the violence. I wanted to, to see... You know, what would a man who is plotting these things, who is so disturbed, what would he be thinking about? And what would be his trigger points? And what would be his sexual fantasies and his mindscape, if you like, that he's wandering through trying to find, you know, a a chink in the the darkness, chink of light in the darkness? Mm -hmm. And um, that's why I thought I've got to start all over. And I can't tell you how depressing that is. Because I'd done all the research and stuff, I thought, "Well, who am I really interested in?" This
1: story—it's mm. him. Yeah, yeah. And
2: and with the exception, I think, and I haven't read a lot of recently a lot of books about serial killers because uh, <laughs> I don't want to be you know I don't want to be influenced in any way. I watch movies. That's that because that's different to me. But um, I, I just wanted to do something different. And, um, who was I just going to say something?
0: Uh. Well, you, you, you retained the plot, didn't you, from your original treatment? Exactly. Uh, You just simply kind of switched the point of view in a way, didn't you? Exactly. Uh,
2: But there, I'm a big Thomas Harris fan. Yeah. And his first book, I think that, well, that I read was Red Dragon. Yeah. And that was brilliant because it gave all that background about Francis Dollarhide. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, the poor little mite, Jesus, the stuff that he had to go through and the hideous grandmother and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And then, you know, you sort of can see, you can understand. And I thought, this is genius. Mm. And I watched the movie and there's no background to his character at no. all. He's just this frantic nutcase.
0: Yeah.
2: And I, that was a big disappointment to me. He's much, and
0: then, much less of a tragic figure, isn't he? In the, in the well, movies. to me, it, yeah. it,
2: it, it just makes them this evil, mysterious figure mm. that they, they, this like a, a tornado, you don't know, it just hits a town and moves on and we don't know why and, you know, all this kind of thing. And then reading the, the um, Silence of the Lambs, which I adored, and you get, um, again, you know, but no background at all anymore. Mm. We don't know why um, Buffalo Bill does those things. You see him watching pictures, you know. He, there and then, you know. Yet again with Hannibal and stuff like that, um, reading the book. Of course, that with the movie completely ignored any the, all the background stuff that that Thomas Harris wrote. But then again, I still didn't feel it was as good a background as he gave Francis Dolarhyde in the first movie. And this is what I would wanted to do because what are we really interested in? We love Hannibal Lecter, mm. you
1: know?
2: and, you know, not so much Buffalo Bill, but certainly Francis Dolarhyde was a fantastic character, mm. and we thought, this is why he's doing it. You see, I've always wanted to know why mm. that's the thing. Why did these people do it? And I never, after all the books, I must have read about 60 or 70 books about forensic psychology, Biographies of serial killers, uh, mm. <laughs> and all these things. I still there's you know all these interviews with Ted Bundy, and he still he couldn't say why, mm.
1: you
2: know, or he didn't want to. Mm. And mm. Um, that's that's why, but that's in essence why I wanted to to explore it from his viewpoint, his sexual fantasies. Yeah. And how he he either goes up or goes down, depending on your viewpoint, um, into what he becomes.
0: Well, Michael does kind of share a few kind of characteristics of Hannibal Lecter, doesn't he? Because it's quite rare that you get, I think it's quite rare that you get uh, an urbane serial killer. Often the serial yeah. killers tend to be portrayed as more blue-collar or lower-down the kind of class system.
2: Well, it's it's interesting. When I, I um, interviewed my, my homicide detective in New York, he had just finished a serial killer case. And he said, this guy was, uh, you know, dumb as a sack of hair. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Wonderful New York expression. I don't know if he used that. He said, you know, we caught him really quickly, but he still managed to kill two women. But, you know, he was just leaving evidence everywhere
1: yeah you know
2: your ted bundy's who actually went to an enormous amount of planning and and stuff like that to get away with their crimes are very rare Mm. but it's sort of like you know if you think about how intelligence spreads across the population Mm. you know you get two percent of the population that are geniuses Mm. another five percent of fairly intelligent people etc. So most of your serial killers are going to get caught fairly rapidly, unless, of course, they're lucky and they just move to another state, which they often do. But there are those that are very intelligent. Ted Bundy was one. Um, John Wayne Gacy mm. did a pretty good job.
0: Yeah. Very much. Continuing
2: on and on. But, you know, there was this one guy who claimed to have killed 176 people. I can't remember his name, but you know, he just kept on moving. He was a you know tramp, so he just kept on moving, and um that's why he didn't get caught. So
0: well, that's something else that Colin Wilson said, isn't it? That many of the serial killers that he'd studied were of high intelligence. But what what strikes Hannibal Lecter as different, and Michael as different, is that not not only are they of high intelligence, but they're also highly educated, aren't they? Which kind of Makes them quite different, I think, uh, uh, fr- from your average serial killer. But yeah. what I was going to say that you was you mentioned uh, Dollarhide in Thomas Harris's Red Dragon as being a kind of a, a more of a tragic or a sympathetic character, whereas Lecter is a sort of superhuman character in a way. But I thought that Michael ultimately was quite tragic. In, because he was quite deluded as well, wasn't he? Because he completely misread Elaine's motives and feelings, didn't he?
2: Yeah, as one often does when you're in an obsessive yeah. relationship with someone or, you you know, you are obsessing about someone. You know, I, I must admit, I think... You know, I love Hannibal Lecter, but especially in the movie, I don't think the scene was in the book, but in The Silence of the Lambs, there's this one bit where he sort of manages to skin a, a policeman in about three seconds or something, and then wear the skin out. Oh, I actually think he did do that in the book. And I went, hmm, you could do that if you were a superhero, serial killer. I mean, that's why I think it's kind of nice that there are some moments when Michael kind of screws up. And he, you know, he escapes through with this, you know, just by the skin of his teeth and things like that, because you can't plan everything. And um, he, he does make mistakes. And he's not, you know, he's not perfect. He's not kind of like, like a superhero in, in, in that way, which is why I think he's, I've tried to make him as, as realistic as possible.
0: So you were talking about Comet Press, which is your your publisher, sir, and yes. and it sounded as though you maybe had some more some more in the pipeline. Any anything uh, that you're working on at the moment?
2: Um, well, the, the, I'm actually working on a musical drama, which is yeah. completely different than right. anything else. That's that's all sort of on my my website and stuff. But I'm, that's I'm just co-writing that with someone else um i'm thinking about um i haven't actually spoken to my publisher about this yet but i'm thinking about putting out maybe next year um a collection of my short stories yeah um my horror short stories because a couple of them were in were in um anthologies that didn't actually get a lot of because they were on very small presses and Mm. so um because one guy who's quite up there in the horror world horror world god that's hard to say uh,
0: <laughs> the world of horror uh,
2: the world of horror um read one of them and said wow i can see this as a movie you right. know, And yeah. that's interesting so i might be pursuing that as well is to to turn one of the short stories into a screenplay
0: it's not polyp is it <laughs> that's certainly Why? a film Didn't i wouldn't like? want i wouldn't want to see that uh actually happened Uh,
2: you know what it's again it's like something possessed me i sent it to my brother and you know and and he just said that's the most disgusting thing i've ever read i don't ever want to read anything of you (laughs) no um, he was actually very sweet but you know he he was appalled but i i sort of i suppose it's because i had this really really closeted shuttered upbringing you know had to be a good little girl all the time so there is a certain glee in writing something that's that's really disgusting how
0: how, how did you come to write that story as a matter of a matter of interest
2: how well, they said body horror yeah and you know i i i um i i've also had close family go through it yeah. as well yeah so um it, it was you know, having so p- people I know having very long-standing problems in that area. Yeah. And I, I sort of went with it, through it with them. So I was very, very aware of of the horror of <laughs> the whole thing. Mm. And, you know, the, the research, which they, they've shared with me and stuff. So it was um, that kind of thing um, was, you know, I, I, again, you know, what happened there, it just sort of came out. Um <laughs> like the pilot. <polyp. laughs>
0: Indeed. So we were talking about your your short stories and that you're going to put together a collection.
2: That, that's what I'm hoping to do. I mean, I haven't spoken to anybody about it yet, but it's getting to the point now where I will have probably enough to do a small collection because I've, I've just um, got another story coming out um January, February, again for Dean Drinkle, who did the Phobophobia. Yeah um anthology i don't know if you read any of those
0: i didn't get a chance to read those but i um, certainly will be reading them
2: okay <laughs> um now cuz that one in there again it's it's, uh, it's from a woman's viewpoint you'll be pleased to hear right <laughs> and it's it's quite sort of elemental stuff it's it's great um but of course phobias and stuff like that again
0: yeah.
2: mm-hmm. uh, i'm you know very interested in that and i really wanted to do a sto- a story about The fear of home invasion. And I had my brain on that because I thought, yeah, yeah, that'd be good. And then I got you because you sort of assigned a letter. And I thought, what am I going to do with you? And then there was uranophobia. And I thought, Fear of the sky, mm. okay, the sky God because she's Greek and extraction, fear of Uranus doesn't want to go out of the house so she becomes a shut-in and then you know somebody tries it so it be- it became a you know, um a story about home invasion yeah. throughout her her fears. But the, the polyp story, getting back to polyp, mm. um again, I think the two the four short stories I have out at the moment, which is Sister Celise, Uranophobia, that's from a female viewpoint.
1: Yeah.
2: And Polyp and American Mutant <laughs> mm-hmm. are from a male viewpoint. So I don't know, I do find it interesting writing, a very liberating actually writing from a male viewpoint. Um, it was really hard for me to to get to write from a female viewpoint. But once I get in there, I don't know why. Um, I think it's it's because I, I I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm I'm short and blonde. I want to be, I want to be a man and powerful. <laughs> <Something> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's all to do with my Napoleon complex. Um.
0: <laughs> so you you saying that you're doing some um, musical next, and then after that, can we expect some more? Psychological horror stroke, dark crime?
2: Yes. Absolutely, I'm thinking on on two levels. I've got this. Um, I hesitate to even say this, but I do have a vampire story that's knocking around, and this really it's really unusual. I know everybody's eyes immediately roll to the top of their heads, um, but uh, this one has no twinkliness mm. or, or or vanilla vanilla sex or any of these. No things. No twilightness. No, no, no vanilla <laughs> vampires. No, it, this is a vampires with a difference, and yeah. they really, really, really are different but it, I've got to be careful with that I think I'm just going to let the whole vampire thing die down a bit because yeah. it's,
0: so you're not but, going to tell us any more about that for fear of, for no, fear no, of spoiling no, it's,
2: it, it yeah well it's, it's very unusual so um, and I think that it's it's a surprise <laughs> <laughs> uh, but have
0: you started um, writing it yet?
2: yes yes and actually an agent read it a, a couple of years ago and, and thought it was wonderful so mm. um um they really enjoyed it but obviously they wanted me to finish it first yeah. um but um,
0: do you do, it, you do you launch straight into a draft or do you do you do sort of outlines before or what do you do pre- to prepare do you just think uh-huh. it through or do you feel your way through it
2: it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of organic with me I, I, again i'm very character orientated and so it's 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 tough for me to work out plots but also I always think I admire writers who sort of get these these really firm this is how it's going to be and said but what if something happens while you're organically writing the story and that that end that you've thought up so brilliantly doesn't fit anymore what do you do do you stop whatever inspiration you know and and try and twist it into how you've outlined it um I remember reading this one thing about how to write a novel, and this guy, he wrote a novel and he got it published and—and and, or or something, but then he thought, oh, God, I'd better write an outline. You know, he suddenly thought, hold on, that's really stupid because you're supposed to write the outline first. Mm. But um, I think probably I would, you know, I, I do think very deeply about things. It's the same when I was writing term papers at university. Mm. You know, I would be the the person who'd be writing the term paper at three in the morning before the last you know, the, 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 the day it was due.
0: But you'd spent yeah. months thinking it through.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's the same with it's the same now. I always find it amusing. Once that first paragraph pops into my head then I can go with it and mm. and that's why I was a bit disappointed because I thought the the vampire story would would was really flowing but then I got distracted by other things and stuff mm. things take a long time for me to finish Ooh. which is why it's really great writing short stories because a there's always you got to have it to me at the end of the month or something
1: mm.
2: and th- it gives me really good boundaries and it's short <laughs>
0: So when you wrote the Venus complex did you did once you'd kind of done that initial pass at it where you'd choose, written written it from the point of view of Elena and then thought no this is not who I want to be writing about did you have the ending in mind as you were writing it or did you find that ending as you as you as you progressed
2: no Now, the ending was a long time. The ending was very frustrating because I thought, how am I going to end this? Of course, we mustn't say how we end it. (laughs) Of course. But I found it very difficult to to think, how is this going to be wrapped up satisfactorily, you know, to everybody's, you know, satisfaction satisfaction including my own and the characters and the way it should be and you know the 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 reality of the situation i was always very very aware of i wanted this guy to really be as realistic as possible yes he's urbane and he's well educated and all that sort of stuff which is unusual for serial killers, but at the same time i wanted him to be as realistic as possible mm. and i think i wrote the most realistic ending actually but i'm not going to say what it is
0: no and um, i'm not going to say what it is either but i will drop a hint and and, and ask another question which is do, do you think there are there are more stories that michael friday might feature in
2: <laughs> well that's giving it a bay way a bit <laughs> yes he comes back from the dead yeah. um he's a zombie Oh. um I, just, I don't know, because a lot of people who've read the book so far, and it's only just been published, of course, have been asking, the same, they want more.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, I, I don't know, I just felt that I really just put so much of that in there and explored so much. I don't know if I want to get back into this guy's head again. But at the same time, he's a great character. And I think great characters that can always go on and have further adventures. And... Um, so that that's it, it's only because people have been asking me, what ha, you know, is there going to be some kind of sequel? Mm-hmm. That makes me think maybe there should be another sequel. So well, as I, I,
0: I as I read the ending, I thought I don't. I thought I don't think we've seen the last of this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he will come back. Um, yes, it did. It did sort of leave it up in the air like that. I suppose. Yeah so i i'm definitely going to be working on it in the new year because uh the the reaction has been fantastic i must admit I, I was i was kind of expecting a few more reviews saying this woman is really sort of you know out to lunch or something but the reviews have been very nice so far i haven't had that many but um so i think if if the demand is there then of course i would write a a sequel
0: so in terms of promoting the book then what 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 kind of events have you been going to and what have you been doing for that
2: well I did monster mania uh in America mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you know at that point the book wasn't published yet but I, I gave away postcards and all that sort of stuff and just doing the usual thing and obviously my publisher is, is promoting it as well but I think because it's a small press there isn't a huge PR machine so I have to create these these opportunities like yeah. you know approaching people like yourself and saying would you like to review the book would you like to do an interview and that that kind of thing but i've i found you know it's been a pretty good response of people being open enough to want to read my first novel which is is wonderful so I, to that i have to say you know big thank you to Clive Barker because um not that he cast me as the the female said but that was Tony Randall. But um, having that kind of pedigree, if you like, in horror means that I can approach um, horror websites and magazines and and stuff and, and ask them, and that they might give me a bit more of a chance that if I was just the one who taught Sooty how to do the robot, which is another aspect of my career. Sure.
0: Well, it's been, a, it's been a, a, quite a multi a varied career hasn't it because you've also been involved in music and in quite a big way weren't you involved in the wasn't the new york punk scene
2: well no it was, it was the new romantics new in romantic.
0: london romantic
2: yeah 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 but we actually did a week's residency in this fantastic venue in um new york city mm. for a, for a week and if the record company had, had any thing thinking in their brains they would have done a bit more promotion I mean we got that gig ourselves through our agents and stuff but um they didn't do any kind of promotion for the record that we were touting around but you know it was a, it was a funny time we had center page in the sun and all that sort of so enormous publicity but no record sales to speak of so you know it's I don't know why uh, maybe we're just too weird mm. um uh, I think they were just, RCA was trying to market us as a kind of weird Buck's Fizz, and
0: it didn't quite yeah. work. <laughs> the t- the, the t- yes, it doesn't quite work in my mind either, it? No, sort of...
2: no, it doesn't. But our music was very strange, but we had really hot producers and people yeah. working with us, and it was great. But, you know, I look back at that time, I love the 80s, you know, and I mm. still listen to the music, and mm. it was, everybody looked fabulous, and, you know, people you know put a bit of effort into going you know dressing up and going out and it was so much fun
0: and is the music that you produce then is that available now
2: no 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 um i think one of our b-sides is on this album called industrial or something Mm -hmm. um but it's it's no, nothing's available now. I mean, the, one of the first signings I did, somebody came up with our single, um, Angel Face,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, I, I nearly fell over. said, <laughs> I've been looking for you on the Internet for years, you know, sign my record. But, you know, it was a very, we, you know, we were just so tiny. I mean, but the, the, the thing is about our group, because we were a dance mime group who also did a bit of music, is that we supported some amazing people like Gary Newman, Ultravox. Depeche Mode, when they were hard, you know, no one knew who Depeche Mode were. Mm. Uh, Classics Niveau, Adam and the Ants. It was fabulous. Um, but we did a lot of touring and work. You think, you know, the usual thing. But I think because we weren't a traditional band, record companies didn't quite know what to do with us. Um, but no, so I mean, I probably should talk to, I mean, I have no idea who owns the masters to those records that um shock made the group i was in mm. but actually i could release my own signal i just have to get in touch with the producers and say hey you know i've got all sorts of <laughs> well, <laughs> some of them not? quite some of them are quite embarrassing though i'm not so quite
0: so well, sure well, the, the 80s is back isn't it so you know, <laughs> it is with a sure there, there, there are plenty of people out there be fascinated to to, to be listening to that
2: they can go to my MySpace page and listen to my music if they want.
0: Wow, there you go. <laughs>
2: Does anybody ever go to MySpace? Um, but I put put some stuff. I have a YouTube channel as well, so you can see me robotting away with Morkim and Wise and Sooty and um, <laughs> and in some Bollywood movie that I did in the eighties. And uh, it's uh, and also, of course, that other holy grail of unfinished, uncompleted. No, um, unreleased horror, Grizzly 2.
0: Grizzly 2, wow. It, it, when was that made? I, I've not heard of it. That, that, that was one.
2: made in 85, 86, I think. And it had the, the young teens that got eaten by the bear in the first five minutes mm. were George Clooney, Laura Dern and Charlie Sheen.
0: Wow, that's a that's a bigger cast than the first film.
2: <laughs> yes, I know, but they were just extras yeah. on them. I mean, have you heard of this film?
0: No, Grizzly, the original Grizzly, which is the William Girdler film, which is,
2: yeah. you know, quite, was, quite
0: quite a well-known cheesy flick from about oh, 78, is, wasn't it? 76, 78. But.
2: Well, if you look up Grizzly 2, the concert, or Grizzly 2 Predator, on YouTube, you will see clips, because they never got the bear together, really. The bear had terrible problems, yeah. um, mechanical problems. Mm-hmm. And the the director, I think he might have had a nervous breakdown, and then the Hungary went in and just, you know, declared the whole thing bankrupt and we all had to leave. But we was in Hungary, we were filming Mm -hmm. Hungary, and I was a member of a pop band that was performing in this national park. And all the the, the, the bears the bear was sort of attacking all the the people going to the concert. And John Reese Davies is in it, you know, from
0: From Raiders of the Lost Ark.
2: Louise Fletcher, Nurse Ratchet ratchet yeah,
0: yeah. louise fletcher yeah oh yeah wow
2: <laughs> they're all in it and they're all terrible and we're all terrible <laughs> <laughs> i mean she's there giving as good as they can get um john reese davies is playing a french canadian bear trapper who you know something and deborah raffin's in it too
0: wow I, I'm, I'm, after this interview i'm going to go straight onto youtube and uh, see if if somebody's put grizzly two up <laughs>
2: Oh, it's it's all up there. All a bunch of clips are up there. They're really bad quality, though, unfortunately. But um, it's highly amusing to see it there.
0: Well, this is another film that I think should maybe be re-released. I'm sure that there will be plenty of bad movie connoisseurs that be interested in seeing Grizzly too.
2: Well, they they are actually uh, trying to do that. Some but some fan has actually put together a work print and and then put clips from the first grizzly in for the bear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you actually get a, like a real gear, bear yeah. doing you know. Mm. But that was I. I mean, I look at my career as being very eclectic and strange, and um, you know, doing shock and being on stage and and touring around. Uh, was an amazing experience, and so was being in Hellraiser and, you know, getting to know people like Clive and all my lovely Cenobites who I still keep in touch with. So, um, you know, but like I said, that was, again, one of the reasons I was asked to write a short story was because I played a female Cenobite. So it's... Uh, but, you know, who would have thought 25 years ago... i never... I almost didn't go to the audition... You know, because I didn't, I, the first one scared me too much.
0: Yeah. And so at the time you weren't into horror then?
2: Well, I was because I went to see the movie and it, yeah. there was a big fuss about it. But I thought I thought I was up to play the chatterer.
1: Oh, right. And yeah. I
2: didn't want to do mask work because I found I'm a bit claustrophobic. Yeah. And um, I found him really, really creepy. Mm. You know, Pinhead was gorgeous but you know that chatterer guy and then he said no no it's to play the female Cenobite, and they will see a little bit of your, your face mm. and stuff so i thought oh, well
0: it's not so bad chatterer is a writer as well i understand
2: yes nicholas vince he's yeah. got um uh, a cl- compilation of his short stories out at the moment what monsters do which is quite marvelous and is it, uh, highly is recommended by barbie wilde it,
0: absolutely is it beneficial to have played a monster in order to become a horror writer do you think to, to think kind of they, go into that dark place and
2: well it's it's funny because i think nico actually after he left acting he went into writing mm. you know for for comic books and i think they were sort of on the dark side so he absolutely is mm. um a lot of the the ladies i've met my fellow actresses in the horror world um uh, you know, I met some really famous ones uh, at uh, conventions and stuff. You know, they always confess to me, "Oh, I, I like romantic movies," you, mm-hmm. know, you know, Richard Gere movie. But I'm I'm fascinated by the genre, and I I love you know, like Doug Bradley. One of his favorite horror films is The Innocents with Deborah Carr. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I love films like you know, the the first thing from outer space, which is yeah. 50s and. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, you could sort of laugh at the monster a bit. But it was very, very effective at the time. It really scared me when I was a kid. Um, I, I find sort of sci-fi horror, like Alien, really interesting. Mm. And the, I thought the... I didn't see the Japanese version, but I thought The Ring was just...
1: Mm.
2: I couldn't watch it alone. I thought, wow, this is good. But it's really... I actually... I think a friend lent it to me, and then I bought the DVD. I thought, I really want to watch this movie again, and I haven't gotten around to it because it was so disturbing.
0: Yeah. Well, but I, I think... remember What the first time I watched it, and then just at the end of the... I watched it on the VHS. I'd recorded it from the TV, and then just as the credits were coming up, the phone rang. <laughs> and I couldn't answer it. I just couldn't answer it because the film had had that effect on me. But do you think that... Is it difficult not to be influenced by Clive Barker as a new horror writer? That his, I mean, his, his work is so influential, isn't it? Is it diff- difficult not to kind of dip into that kind of world that he's created?
2: Well, you see, what I like to think is, I mean, see, this is why I try not to read... You know, it sounds terrible because I know a lot of my fellow writers read so much and they watch a lot of horror movies. And I don't do that. I like movies with with palm trees and beaches in them. And you know, if someone's drinking a cocktail. I'm very happy. And it doesn't matter if somebody comes out with a dinosaur or whatever. That's fine, you know. Yeah. But it's you know because I do have dark thoughts, and so I do tap into this. And it's almost like that's enough. You know, but I am interested in. in I'm very fussy about my horror. Mm. So if I do watch a horror movie, I want to make sure that, you know, I'm going to find it intriguing and interesting. And the thing about Clive's work is he has such a different take on things. And, you know, I read The Body Politic recently because it was in the mammoth book of body horror
0: mm-hmm.
2: and i reread it and i just thought God, what a brilliant idea
0: mm. is that the but one about the man with the, t- the two the two hands Two the
2: hands the yeah. hands that rebel yeah it's that's brilliant it, yeah. yeah and um but i think i what i like to think is with my work as well you know what i see in clive is i think his stuff is very muscular the way he writes and very sexy and and quite funny even Hellbound Heart, the novella, mm. I had to reread it again to write because we had to base our stories on the novella from yeah. Hellbound Heart. Yeah, I thought, God, this is just so good, and it's so, and yet he still manages to work some humor into it, which I think I've done as well with my book. I'd like to think that you know I don't pussyfoot around with my writing, and I like to write straight. You know, one of my my heroes as an author is Hemingway. Mm. I love the way he writes, because in many ways he writes like a journalist, which is how he stood, you know, started out. And um, to have a little bit of, of fun in I mean, I hope you found the humor in, in Venus Complex as well. as.
0: Uh, no, absolutely. As I said <laughs> in my review, there's a sort of the, the black comedy. Uh, uh, it kind of offers a very kind of acerbic kind of commentary, I think, on the world.
2: Well, a, fr- a friend of mine once... Um, said humankind where horror you know when humans are involved there's always horror in human yeah. hu- humor in equal measure you know and i it's interesting because in many ways i think that the serial killers that are amongst us are real life horror mm. you know that 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 you can get all these fantastical things and the, in many ways that's kind of comforting i suppose because you know you know you're not going to You know, I don't know if people believe in ghosts and things like that. I think if I was going to believe in anything, it would be ghosts. But I think serial killers, because they're really out there, that's really horrible. Yeah.
0: And as you say, the sort of writing style demands almost a kind of journalistic precision, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, that's what I I wanted to to bring to it. Because this is a guy writing his thoughts down in a diary. Um, Well, Actually, another horror film that I didn't know was a horror film that I, I thought was very effective, was Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. And there you see, there's this girl with her little fantasy world, which is, you know, I thought it was a kid's film. Boy, was I misinformed. Yeah, But, but also she's dealing with this complete psychopathic stepdad and the fascism of, you know, 30s Spain and all this sort of yeah. stuff.
0: He does um, that very well, doesn't he? That That kind of parallel worlds between the sort of supernatural world and the kind of social <laughs> political world.
2: Uh, that was so effective i was in floods of tears at the end of that film it affected me so much yeah and and it was just you know i okay i can't even talk about it without getting again very moved and yet it it was like beyond horror and yet it is a horror movie in many ways so that's what i'm i'm kind of interested in in creating and i think with uranophobia i oops i'm slip that one that's the one i'm, I'm thinking I'll, about i'll bleep
0: that one out for you
2: bleep it out please yeah um that could actually make a uh, an interesting film so we just have to see excellent what pops out of my head <laughs> next
0: well barbie it's been fantastic talking to you and i would urge everybody listening to this podcast to go out and buy the venus complex
2: well, John, thank you very much. Um, it was a pleasure talking to you, and you're very knowledgeable. It's nice to see there's another Colin Wilson fan out there.
0: <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Friday,
2: Friday Night Frights.
0: Frights. Well, that's it for tonight's Friday Night Frights. But don't forget you can reach me via the Starburst website or on Twitter at Starburst underscore mag. Until next time, stay, stay scared. scared.
1: you nice.